you'll find your place in your Bible with me today at the Gospel of John chapter 4, we continue in this theme of simply Jesus, things that Jesus said, things that Jesus did, things that Jesus taught, and we're just simplifying our lives. We've been in so much complexity and so much chaos and so much controversy and so many things that are going on that you know, sometimes you just come back to the fundamentals, and this year we're coming back to the fundamentals. We're coming back to simply Jesus. And we're really looking at this entire chapter, though we're not going to read all of this chapter today, but I do hope that you'll read this chapter because we'll probably come back to it again next Sunday. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you'll lead us and guide us in these next few minutes as we turn our attention to your word. We've been worshiping in song. We've been worshiping in prayer. We certainly worship as we serve, as we fellowship. But Lord, now we come to worship through your word. And I pray that you'll speak to our hearts this day. In your name I pray. Amen. It's hard to believe, but it's been almost 40 years ago that I, as the youth pastor of a church in Georgia, took our youth group to Disney World. It's the only time I've ever been to Disney World. Mary wasn't able to go with us. Our children were young, so she wasn't able to take them along with us. Uh, 20 or 30 young people uh, going to Disney World is always an interesting trip. If you've ever been on a trip like that, an overnight trip that takes two or three days in order for us to take. The truth of the matter is, other than the fact that we took the trip, I don't remember anything about the trip except for one song. I did ride Space Mountain, but I don't remember anything about Space Mountain. And I went through It's a Small, Small World. I don't know if you've ever been to Disney World, you've ever been through that ride, It's a Small, Small World, but from the beginning to the end, the song just gets repeated over and over and over again. And it got ingrained in my head, and 40 years later, I still know that song. And periodically, that song will come out. It'll just start, I'll start singing that song, or I'll start thinking about that song. It's a small world. It's a small, small world. And it goes over and over and over again. And you know what I'm talking about if you've ever been there. It's one of those songs that you just can't let go of. Well, sort of in a similar fashion, there's been a phrase in the Scripture in John chapter 4 that has been stuck in my head now for weeks. It's really the reason why we're focused as we're focused in this new year. And it's found in the 35th verse of John chapter 4. And it comes out of this story of the Samaritan woman. I haven't been able to get away from this phrase. It wasn't that I had read through this text and suddenly it stood off the page to me. It was just that it came to my heart and came to my mind. And I've been going to bed with this phrase. I've been getting up with this phrase. I've been thinking about this phrase through the course of the day. And it's really been something that I can't get away from. It's something that I feel that God has been working in my own spirit for my own benefit. And it's something God has been saying to me again and again so that we would focus on this as a church body. And really, it's one of the reasons, the primary reason, that we've been involved in handing out these various cards and trying to get people to go and listen to a gospel presentation. Uh, the purpose isn't as much to get them to listen to the presentation, though we certainly hope that they will do so and that they'll hear the gospel and be saved. But the purpose is to cause us to stop and to pay attention to the people that are around us, 
to stop and to look at the people that are already in our lives, people that we interact with on a daily basis, and to stop and remember that those people have eternal souls that desperately need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase that I'm talking about in chapter 4, verse 35, is the little phrase that says, lift up your heads and look. Lift up your eyes and look. Lift up your head and your eyes and look. Lift up your eyes and look. Lift up your eyes and look. Lift up your eyes and look. It's a phrase that you find a lot of times in the Old Testament. It has a very specific meaning. It gives the idea of making sure that you see something, making sure that you're looking. It means to pay attention. Don't be distracted so that you miss something you shouldn't be missing. It's the idea of making sure that you're focused or looking up so that you don't miss something very important in your life. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, Lot was given the choice of whatever particular area he wanted to take his family and his herds and live. And this is what it says, Genesis 13, verse 10. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan. He couldn't just keep looking down. He couldn't just keep looking in that immediate vicinity. He had to lift up his head. He had to lift up his eyes. And he had to look, and he saw this plain that was well watered and it was beautiful. It's used again in, John, in Genesis chapter 18, verse 2, when the three men are on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah, and they stop for this conversation with Abraham. One of these is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. The other two are angelic creatures in the form of men. And this is what it says about Abraham. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him, he didn't see them before. He was busy about other things. He was looking down and looking around. And he lifts up his head and he looks and he sees these three men and he goes out to them. You find it again in Genesis chapter 24, verses 63 and 64, when the servant of Abraham has sent, been sent to find a wife for Isaac. And as she comes riding back on a camel, this is what it says in Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked. And there the camel were crossing. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. You get the idea? Jesus picks up that very Old Testament idea, and he says to his own disciples, lift up your eyes and look. You're looking around and you're distracted by so many other things. You're not paying attention. You're not seeing what you don't want to miss. You're missing things that you want to see. You got to lift up your head. You got to lift up your eyes and you got to pay attention. And that's what these cards have been about. These cards have been about sharing the gospel, obviously, in a video format, but they've been about causing you and me to stop and pay attention to the people that are around us, to make us think about the person waiting on us at the table, or the person who's coming to our house, houses to fix something, or the individual that is in our network of friends, or the neighbor across the street. Lift up your eyes and look. There are people all around us who desperately need to hear the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You know this story. Probably many of you know this story. It's found in the Gospel of John chapter 4. Jesus is going from Jerusalem to Galilee, and he goes through Samaria. He could have gone another way, but he said, I have to go through Samaria because he knew there was a divine appointment with a woman at a well in Samaria. And more than that, it wasn't just one woman. It was ultimately going to be many Samaritans that he had a divine appointment to meet. And so he goes through Samaria. It's been a long trip. It's hot. They're thirsty. And so they stop at the well of Jacob. Jesus sits down at that well, and the disciples go on into the city of Sychar in Samaria in order to buy food. While Jesus is sitting at that well, this woman from Samaria comes out to draw water out of this well. And Jesus engages her in a conversation. It's a conversation that begins about water. Would you give me some water, he says to this woman. And she's surprised that he would even ask such a question of her, and I'll explain that in just a few moments. Surprised that he would even ask such a question. But then he goes on to tell her, if you would have asked me, I would have given you living water. Living water that has no end. Living water that's like a well that just constantly comes up out of you, that wells up out of you. It's, it's living water. You would have had it. And she wanted to know more about that living water. And she proceeds into a discussion about religion, about the Samaritan religion and how it differed from the Jewish religion. Jesus ultimately says, you know, it doesn't matter which mountain you worship on, though the true mountain is the one in Jerusalem. The fact of the matter is, those that worship me have to worship me in spirit and in truth. Well, ultimately, she comes to put her faith in this one who's talking to her. She comes to trust this one who was telling her these things. And the result is that she goes back into the city. And we pick the story up in John chapter 4, verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. In this particular story where Jesus is encouraging his disciples to pay attention, lift up your heads and lift up your eyes and see what is going on around you and recognize the incredible need that's right here before you, 
There's four things that I want to point out. I may not get them all done today, but there's four things that I want to point out that come from the contrasts. You hear the word? That come from the contrasts that are found in this story. This story teaches us lessons from the contrast between passion and prejudice. That is, passion for people and prejudice against people. I don't know how much you know about this story, but let me make sure you understand that this woman was someone that would have been considered by many to have been a three-time loser. This woman would have been somebody who would have been shunned in her own society, let alone the Jewish society. The reason, number one, she was a woman, number two, she was a Samaritan, and number three, she was a serial adulterer. Think about this for a moment. In first century society, did you know that there were some of the rabbis, not all of them, but some of the rabbis who wouldn't talk to a woman or teach a woman because they felt that they would be defiled if they were to do so? Some of them went so far as to vow that if they even saw a woman out of the corner of their eyes, they would immediately close their eyes so that they never looked on a woman, not even once. They never looked on a woman. That's how they viewed them. Because they kept their eyes closed so often, they would walk off of the end of things, falling off of things, and running into trees and buildings. And this is no joke. This particular society of rabbis became known as the bruised and bleeding rabbis. The bruised and bleeding rabbis. Why? Because of the view that they had toward women. Or think about the second strike. She's a Samaritan. There was incredible prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans. And prejudice goes both ways, by the way. Prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the Samaritans felt that prejudice from the Jews because they were a mixed race. Some 700 plus years before, the Assyrians had come and they had conquered the northern territory of Israel. And when they did so, they carried most of the Jews to another territory, to another land to live, to their land to live. But then they took others that were Gentiles and they transplanted them back into that territory to take care of the land and keep the peace. Ultimately, those Gentiles married with the few Jews that were left and what came forth was a Samaritan race of people. The law forbade intermarriage because of the religious consequences. And so the Jewish people looked at the Samaritans as compromisers. They looked at them as traitors to God and traitors to the Jewish law. And they had this incredible prejudice. There were other things that happened between the Samaritans and the Jews. But in Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, it even says that the Samaritans were viewed as the enemies of the Jews, as the enemies of the Jews. And so this woman has two of these strikes already against her. She's a woman, and women in that society were differently viewed than they are today in modern society. And she was a Samaritan on top of it. But then you add that third one. She was a serial adulterer. She's been married five times. That means she's been through the process of divorce five times. And Jesus says you're living with a man that's not your husband right now. And so this woman had everything against her, from her gender to her race to her morality. Everything was against her. And most of the Jews had an incredible prejudice against the Samaritans. 
But I want you to notice Jesus. Jesus had a passion for this woman's soul and for the souls of the men and women in Samaria. Jesus saw this woman in spite of the three strikes that were against her, and he saw her as a precious soul that needed the deliverance that he had come to provide. And he knew by going through Samaria, he would have this divine encounter with this woman and with these Samaritans, but he went anyway because Jesus wasn't prejudiced against them. Jesus was passionate for them. There was a Scottish botanist who was out in the field studying a very small plant called a heather bell. He was down on his knees. He had a magnifying glass, and he was studying this little tiny flower that grew close to the ground. He looked at that flower through that magnifying glass for two hours. There was an old shepherd who was watching this as it was unfolding. He couldn't believe that this grown man would spend two hours with a magnifying glass looking at that little tiny flower. The botanist looked up and he saw the smirk on the shepherd's face and he called him over. He said, come over here, come over here. He took him by the edge of his robe and he pulled him down and he gave him that little magnifying glass and he said, I want you to look at this flower. I want you to see this flower. Look at it. The old shepherd looked and he saw the exquisite beauty of that one little heather bale. Then he stood to his feet with tears streaming down his cheeks and said, Oh, to think how many of those I have trampled under my feet and I never even knew they were there. I wonder how many people we've trampled under our proverbial feet not even realizing our prejudice was the real cause. We lacked the passion of Christ to care about people and to reach out to people and to lift up our eyes and look. We saw them as Democrats or Republicans or independents. We saw them as our opponents rather than the souls for whom Jesus Christ died. There was a sales manager who called his sales team together one day trying to encourage them about a greater vision for the, for the company. He had a big white poster board that he set up in that conference room, and in the middle of it, he had painted a black circle. And then he began to ask these, uh, this sales team to come tell him privately what they saw on that poster board. The first one said, I see a black dot. The second said, I see a black dot. The third said, I see a black dot. Thirty-five of them came up to that, to that manager and said, I see a black dot. The sales manager afterwards looked at them for a moment, and then he said, isn't it strange that all of you saw the black dot, but not one of you saw the white paper around it? I mean, how do you see? What do you see when you lift up your eyes? What do you see when you see the other person with whom you have such difference? What do you see? Somebody who's an opponent or somebody for whom Jesus Christ died. How do you see them? Lift up your eyes and look, Jesus said. Jesus had a passion for these people. Not a prejudice against them. He had a passion for these people. School teacher, in your classroom, do you see students only? Or do you see souls that need to know Jesus? Business person, in your office, do you see employees only or do you see souls that need to know Jesus? Doctor, 
In your office, do you see patients only or do you see souls that need to know Jesus? Hey, coach, in your gym, do you see athletes only or do you see souls that need to know Jesus? How about his students? In your school or in your college, do you see classmates only or do you see souls that need to know Jesus? How about it, neighbor? In your community, do you see fellow residents or do you see souls that need to know Jesus? How about it, community activists? Community activists. In the streets of our city, do you see people needing social services only? Or do you see souls that need to know Jesus? I ask you, what do you see? Lift up your eyes and look. We desperately need the passion of Christ for people. How passionate was Christ for people? He was so passionate that he was willing to be taken to a cross and nailed on a cross to die for their sins. It's the ultimate passion. What do we call it? What do we call the week leading up to Easter? We call it what? Passion week. Jesus was constantly looking people and looking past their faults and looking past all the strikes that were against them and looking past all the things about them that everybody else paid attention to. And Jesus saw their souls. Lift up your eyes and look, Christian. Those people that you've been saying things about on social media and the things that you've been attacking in the political process, those are people for whom Jesus died. Do you only see them as a black dot? Or do you see the greater need that's the reality of all of their souls? This story teaches us the lesson... in the contrast between passion and prejudice. So many of us are filled with prejudice. We don't know it. We don't recognize it. But the prejudice comes out because when we're in the presence of people, we don't tell them the gospel. We don't hand them a card and say, let me introduce you to a video that'll tell you about what Jesus has done for you. We just see the poor service that they gave us at the table. We just see the political party to which they belong. We just see the neighbor who won't keep his yard cut and who constantly causes problems in the neighborhood. That's all we ever see. And Jesus comes and Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look. This story teaches us lessons as well from the contrast between enthusiasm and apathy, between enthusiasm and apathy. It might surprise a lot of people to learn that this word enthusiasm originally, in its original intent, meant passion for religion. It's come to mean passion, to be eager or passionate about things that are of secular nature, things in general. But this word is borrowed from a Greek word. Actually, one part of the word is in theos in God, in theos, to be passionate in God. 
It had a religious connotation to it. It referred to beliefs or passions that related to religion. And it wasn't until the 18th century that this word began to take on the more secular meaning that we give to it today. Enthusiasm is supposed to be a part of every one of our hearts, every one of our lives, supposed to be a part of the souls of all men, all men who know Jesus Christ. You know what I notice about this woman? I notice this woman's enthusiasm for the one that she just met whose name was Jesus. You see her enthusiasm in at least three ways. In verse 28, it says, The woman then left her water water pot and went her way into the city. She left her water pot. That's her source of drawing water. And she left it behind. You know why? Because in those moments, meeting Jesus Christ and hearing Jesus and having conversation with Jesus and believing on Jesus, she became so excited, she left what was absolutely essential to sustaining her life, that water pot. She was so enthusiastic. You know what I'm talking about. You fishermen that are here, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you caught one about like this, but you're so enthusiastic, it's like this. By the time you tell the story, this woman just simply left her water pot. Some people believe that there's some symbolism here, that that water pot represented her old life that left her empty and thirsty. But now that Jesus, she had met Jesus who had promised her living water that would be like a well that would constantly spring up within her. She no longer needed her old life. She walked away from her old life. And that picture may be accurate. I don't know. But I believe that she was so excited about Jesus that she just turned around and walked away from that water pot, running away from that water pot. Her enthusiasm is seen in if you notice in verse 29, he, she says, come see a man. She gets back into Sychar. She, sees a, she says, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? I don't know if you see it or not, but unless John doesn't record everything that was said between this woman and himself, between him, this woman and Jesus, the fact of the matter is Jesus didn't tell her all things that ever she had done. But this woman is so excited and she is so enthusiastic. And exaggeration sometimes is the result of enthusiasm. This woman has met Christ and she's excited about him. I see her enthusiasm in verse 30. 30. It says, and they went out of the city and came to him. She goes into the city. She leaves her water pot behind. She says, Jesus has told me everything I've ever done. I mean, she is so eager and so excited about Jesus. And now this crowd of people in Sychar want to go out to meet Jesus. By the way, this wasn't one or two people. This wasn't five or six people. Jesus says to his disciples, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are, you know the words, white unto harvest. You know what he was seeing? He was seeing the people out of Samaria in those robes that they wear, those, those uh, wheat-colored robes, those white-colored robes, coming up over the hillside. It was like a field full of people who were coming out to meet him. You know why? 
Because this woman went back into her town and she got so excited about Jesus that everybody had to come out and they had to meet Jesus for themselves to find out if this was the Christ. As she said, this is the Christ. Do you find it interesting that the disciples who had just come from the same city didn't bring anyone to Jesus? Let, Let me say it again. Do you find it interesting that the disciples who had just come from the city of Sychar didn't bring anyone out to meet Jesus? But this woman and her enthusiasm and this woman and her excitement was able to bring a host of people that looked like a field full of wheat coming out to Jesus. Apparently, these disciples left their discipleship at the well, and they didn't take it with them into the marketplace. And that's what a lot of us do, isn't it? We have our discipleship that we pull out of the, out of the drawer for Sunday, and then we put it back in after Sunday, and we go into the marketplace, and we forget what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus means to be excited to introduce other people to Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. At the top of the list of what it means to be a disciple is pursuing people enthusiastically as Jesus pursued them. I quote sometimes from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I know he lived in another era. But sometimes he says it in ways that I just can't figure out how to say it any better. Charles Spurgeon said, if someone were to to offer you $1,000 for every person you reached for Christ, that would be like $10,000 today. If someone were to offer you $1,000 for every person you reached for Christ, would you make more of an effort than you are right now when the reward is an eternal crown? We come and go through the motions of our religiosity and our Christianity. We see our neighbor across the street and we have feelings about that neighbor or that person that we walk through the business and we see or the people we work by in the plant or other friends that are in our lives or people in our lives and the prejudice that we feel toward them squashes the passion that we ought to have for the gospel for them. We never see them like Jesus sees them. We see them through our own prejudice. We've lost the excitement of our faith in Jesus. We haven't led anybody to faith in Jesus in so long. It's hard to even remember the last time we told somebody about Jesus. Each generation has a specific and strategic mission they have to accomplish. We aren't responsible for the past generation, and we cannot bear the responsibility of the next one completely. But we do have our generation to reach, and God's going to hold us accountable for how enthusiastically we shared the gospel with people, and it takes an enthusiastic body of people to reach this generation. Hey, you can't sit in the pew with your arms crossed watching me preach And that's all you're going to do in us reach this world with the gospel of Jesus. Did you know that there's 1.6 billion people in our world who have never heard the saving message of Jesus? 
Did you know that there's 70,000 plus people a day who go into eternity without the hope of the gospel? While we've been hiding out in our houses, 500,000 people have gone into eternity, most of which went to an eternal hell. We don't get enthusiastic about, about reaching people with the gospel. It will never happen. It will never happen. And here is a woman. She met Jesus and she became enthusiastic. As opposed to the apathy of the disciples, they just came out of the same city. But this woman comes out of the city with a host of people, a field that looked like a field of wheat coming out to meet Jesus. Jesus had passion for, this, for these people, the Samaritans, and for this woman. This woman had enthusiasm about the gospel. And Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look. Lift up your eyes and look. Aren't we supposed to be fervent, friends? Are you with me this morning? Aren't we supposed to be fervent, friends? Aren't we supposed to be enthusiastic? Aren't we supposed to be eager? Aren't we supposed to be zealous? Aren't we supposed to be excited? We're here today to worship the God of the frozen chosen. Let's remain silent in his presence. Let's let no one get excited at any moment for any reason because your heart rate might go up and you might have a heart attack in a service. Romans 12 says, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Jesus said in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go! Get excited about it. Get eager about it. Go! He didn't say sit. He didn't say wait. He said get busy. Get out there where the people are. Tell them the need of the gospel. The contrast. Aren't you thankful the early church was passionate about the task of evangelism? And a lot of them lost their lives in the process. And the presence that we have today here in this service and in churches that are Bible-believing churches across the, across the world is the evidence of the passion and the excitement of that early church for the task of evangelism. Well, I give my money for somebody else to do that. You're part of the problem. We ought to be giving our money to help others do what we cannot do, but we have to do what we are supposed to do right where we are. We have to look, lift up our eyes and, what's the word? We have to lift up our eyes and look. I'll share one more with you and I'll finish and come back to it next week. This story teaches us lessons from the contrast between the eternal and the temporal. Between the eternal and the temporal. It's amazing that when the disciples returned from the city of Sychar with the food, they found a totally different Jesus than when they'd left him sitting at the well. When they went into town, Jesus was tired, but they found him invigorated upon returning. When they went into town, they left him hungry, 
But when they came back, his hunger was satisfied. When they went into town, they left him hot and thirsty. But when they came back, they found him refreshed and no longer thirsty. In other words, Jesus found his greatest satisfaction in life in doing the the will of God. That was the greatest satisfaction in the life of Jesus. More than self-preservation, he was concerned with the eternal salvation of people's souls. And can I just tell you something? That obedience to the mission of God and in the mission of God brings with it blessing and strength that no amount of physical pleasure will ever offer you. It's like that water that you have to keep dipping out of the well. Keep dipping out of the well. But when you get on mission with God and you lift up your eyes and you look, you look, and you start getting busy in the mission, you find that God satisfies you in ways that nothing in this world can ever satisfy you. Think about it. A fish out of water can't be happy, can he? Can it? Because God made it to swim. And a bird in a cage can't be happy, can it? Because God made it to fly. And a man in disobedience to God can't be happy because God made him to do his will. You're miserable today. It's likely because you're not doing God's will. You're doing your own will. One of my favorite authors is Dr. Thomas Constable. By the way, his notes are free. You can have them for yourself. Downloadable as PDF files. Incredible professor at Dallas Theological Seminary who's retired now. This is what he said about this passage. Jesus showed little interest in eating. He used the disciples' urging to teach them something about his priorities. Something was more satisfying to him than food. They showed interest in the physical need primarily, but he had more concern for spiritual need. So let me ask you a question. Are you with me so far? Can you tell I'm passionate about this? So let me ask you a question. Are you, are you with, with me? Are you with me? Those of you online, are you with me? Lean in. Don't miss this. Let me ask you a question. What does it say about a church's enthusiasm for the gospel when there's a need for helpers to carry the load of the ministry so that they can keep reaching people, but people don't step up to help? Dr. Tim Yates said something recently. I didn't ask him permission to quote this, and I may have missed it a little bit. This is what he said. Church should be your excuse to miss everything else, but we use everything else as an excuse to miss church. Dr. Yates, if I missed it, forgive me. I like the way I have it best. (laughs) If it doesn't accurately represent what you said, I like the way I wrote it. Church should be your excuse to miss everything else, but we use everything else as an excuse to miss church. What does it say when you've got people who are giving everything and are desperately in need for people to come along and say, here, I'll put my hand to the plow. We're reaching people with the gospel of Jesus. 
And they look at the need and they sit there on their hands and say, somebody else will do it. We have to recognize that the eternal things we've been given by God to do are the greater importance, are of greatest importance over any other thing we've been given to do in life. Do you believe that? Let me say it again. We have to recognize that the eternal things we've been given by God to do are of greater importance than any other thing we have to do in life. I heard about a man that was asked to work on Sunday. He told his boss, oh, no, 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 I, I can't work on Sunday. I have to go down to my church and work, work on Sunday. Well, his boss was sort of a smart aleck, like a lot of them are. And he said, well, what do they pay you down there? And he responded, oh, the pay isn't much, but the retirement plan is out of this world. That's right. Some of you have done really well planning for this life, but you hadn't done so well planning for the life to come. And guess what? I have yet to see a hearse pulling a U-Haul carrying all of your things to a cemetery. It's whatever you lay up. It's the investment you make in the things that are eternal that matter the most. We've got to get busy and get the message of the gospel to as many people as possible in as many ways as possible for as long as possible to reach as many people as possible. Got to lift up our eyes and look. There's a story about a farmer who had an old grandfather clock that used to chime on the hour. One morning, the clock malfunctioned, and it struck 17 times. The farmer jumped up out of bed. He grabbed his wife and shook her, and he said, Honey, get up. It's later than it's ever been before. <laughs> Can I tell you something, friends? For a lot of people's souls, it's later than it has ever been before. They're going off into eternity without Jesus We've got to pay greater attention to the things that are eternal than the things that are temporal because the souls of men and women are hanging in the balance. If you were looking for some little ditty of a sermon, you need to find yourself another church because you're not going to get those here as long as I'm the pastor. If you're looking for the preaching of the Word of God it causes you to lift up your eyes and look. That's what we're about. That's what we're about. That's why we take this card. This past week I was sitting with a group of men and I took this card and I gave it to the waitress who had brought us our meals. And I said, I want to invite you to the church. I said, I want you to have a free ice cream, but you've got to scan that and watch the video first. And it's the first time this has happened to me. She said, well, what happens if I tear it off and go get the ice cream without watching the video? <laughs> well, it's like the old Mission Impossible cassette tape. It will self-destruct. <laughs> the ice cream will melt before you can eat it. First time I've had somebody ask me that question. You say, preacher, how many people have watched the video? Does it really matter? It does matter. 
It matters how many have watched that gospel presentation. But do you know what matters more as far as I'm concerned? It makes me lift up my eyes from looking at a meal and criticizing and complaining about the service that I received or didn't receive and the price that it cost and to recognize that that woman who was waiting on our table was a woman who has an eternal soul that needs to know Jesus Christ. I understand that ultimately videos don't lead people to Jesus. People lead people to Jesus. But people aren't ever going to lead people to Jesus as long as they're like this. You've got to lift up your eyes and you've got to look around you. There are people without Jesus everywhere. Everywhere.